Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. This is a rather special episode, um, episode 15, because it is my first interview in the room with my guest. Yes, uh, intimately la- close. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on a screen. And this is with the writer, performer, Paul Albra, a.k.a. Professor Elemental. Thanks Hello. very much. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Awesome. And nice to be almost uncomfortably close to you as well. <laughs> uh, what, it, what, is, what is social distancing? It's, Apparently uh... <laughs> it doesn't exist in this room. What goes in this room stays in this room. And also on the podcast, obviously. <laughs> this is so nice, though. Um, thank you for for doing this listeners we're currently in my sort of office space at the moment surrounded by toys and uh pictures of cartoons and all the things that my partner won't let me keep in the house (laughs) (laughs) it's uh it's a it's a it's a nerd paradise it is a nerd paradise it definitely is that if it's if it's anything it's that so it's a big testament to my childhood and the fact that I haven't been able to give it up. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, I mean, this is possibly one of the very few interviews where you are just being yourself. You're not... Because you can't... You don't have to... You don't have to be the professor in this... For this interview. Thank God. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so normally, because I'm only... In terms of being a character comedian, I've only really got the one character and I've played him for, you know, nearly... 15 years now so inevitably when I do do podcasts and interviews and things it's you know people are more interested in at least having the one thing I've been known for rather than myself so this is refreshing (laughs) I've almost forgotten how it is to be normal (laughs) it's fine you can put the pith helmet away uh... (laughs) I don't know what I am without that pith helmet I'm nothing I should probably say actually yeah for people who may not be so familiar with Professor Elemental who is he so Professor Elemental as a character is a Victorian mad professor and explorer who lives in an old country pile somewhere in Sussex. He's got an orangutan butler, he's got creatures in his cellar, he cuts the heads off badgers and sticks them on flamingos, um, and he <laughs> raps about all of those things. And on, there's kind of two sides to him. On the one hand, he is very enthusiastic, very inclusive and very optimistic about everything that's going on, particularly his own achievements. Uh, but on a kind of slight, as deep as these things ever get, on a slightly deeper level, he's also very needy and egotistical and desperate for an acceptance that he'll never get. Um, and it didn't 
you know, it was pretty easy to tap into those feelings, <laughs> having been a middle-class rapper for an awfully long time. <laughs> so let's, um, well, let's uh, cast your mind back to 2008. You uh, released a video that would bring uh, YouTube success, shall we say? Yeah, it was, it was very much, I was performing in a kind of variety show, really, made up of acts that no one wanted to see individually or apparently when you put them all together in a variety show um and i was doing kind of a little a little bit of sort of victorian style rapping and a chap called moo came to the show and um he said oh, i'd love to make a music video and i was really excited so we did a song about drinking cups of tea and how much i enjoyed it and it just it was in the days where the algorithms weren't quite so rigorous and dictatorial um so things occasionally just rose to the top of youtube just by sort of coincidence i think <laughs> um a random bit of chance and yeah it just it went absolutely bananas and having not had even a crumb of success in either writing music or comedy prior to that i leapt on that like you wouldn't believe <laughs> and continue to ride it to this very day i slurped up a cup from an elephant's truck with a couple of mucks who utterly stuck i've had bourbons with sultans and creams with queens and i've bathed in old gray i'm really that keen and missionaries dismissed me for my single epiphany the dip between him and me is a simple sip of British tea so when times are hard and life is rough you can stick the kettle on and find me a cup now when I say Earl Grey you say yes please Earl Grey yes please Earl Grey yes please when I say Assam you say lovely Assam lovely Assam lovely and that was um, that track was called um, A Cup of Brown Joy and uh, how I mean how did that suddenly Take like take off. Was that the uh, is the catalyst the word? Yeah, the, the yeah, the catalyst the for what would become your legacy as the professor. <laughs> Strange uh, accidental years. legacy, Christ. Yeah, it was really because it was. It, you know, I'm doing the sort of act and still do the sort of act that really belongs in a kind of underground comedy night or some strange party you sort of only vaguely remember going to in an underground car park in a town you don't <laughs> recognise. And so to have it suddenly get a, you know a tiny crumb of mainstream success and a little bit of press, I then started getting inquiries for gigs and more sort of importantly for a career point of view, I got inquiries from America because I was doing something that fitted in with a subgenre called steampunk just as steampunk was taking off. So it's all luck, as these mm. things always are. It's just a matter of luck. It's timing. Really. Matter of just pure lucky timing. And because I got those gigs in America, that gave me the confidence to maybe try giving up teaching and, and turning it into a career. And astoundingly, it worked. <laughs> what was the uh, gig in America? It was one called the, it was called the um, Steampunk World's Fair. And I had a really sort of pivotal conversation, one of those little conversations that's sort of meaningless at the time, but just dictate, sends your whole life on a path. I was talking to this guy there, random American, because they always, they always just sit down and assume it's all right to talk to you, even though you'd rather be sitting, <laughs> sitting alone, reading a paper. And this guy sat down and he was talking about it. And I was saying, oh, man, this has gone really well. I think I'm thinking of, you know, sort of giving up my job. And becoming this character full time, and because he was an American, he was just like, "Yeah, man, goddamn hell yeah, you got to do it. Just gotta fulfil your dreams, man. You can do it." And I was really fired up, and I just remember coming home and saying to everybody and saying to my partner, "Look, I think I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this for a living." And to a man, every single one of them was like, "Oh." Don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> what are you going to do when that fails? I mean, I suppose you can always go back to teaching when it goes wrong. So it was, yeah, it was. You can always rely on the Brits for 
a bit uh, of realism. Support yeah, and, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah, realism. But it was necessary. It was necessary to tap into that American enthusiasm because mm. much as, you know, it's easy to take the mickey out of uh, sort of American culture in that respect, there is a real, like, proper can-do attitude. If you've got a strange mm. idea and somebody else has got a strange idea, they don't question about whether or not it's going to work or be successful. They just crack on and do it. So tapping into that was really pivotal for me. It's always interesting as well because... Um, I mean, I'm generalising here, but in comedy, it seems that, you know, the American American sitcoms uh, have perhaps more likeable characters mm-hmm. and characters who, you know, they want they want them to succeed. Whereas over here, we like watching people fail. Yeah, absolutely. And it's absolutely, you know, that's why so many examples of English comedies have gone over to America and collapsed because they, you know, there is that, <laughs> yeah. there's that necessary thing where you, you know, you do, you want your characters to fail, and that's that's why hopefully the the, the professor has worked for such a long time in some respects is because he is able to be, you know, he's very very full of himself and has huge ideas of grandeur, or at least just acceptance, like he wants to be the sort of upper class. Hmm. Character he wants to, he wants to be sort of known around town and no no one will ever give him that respect and I think that's kind of that keeps him keeps him going as a character. What I think uh, works so well as also about um, the professor is that you get so you ha- there have been so many people it's like oh. Um, posh people rapping isn't that a lark kind of thing and the thing is you are actually a very skilled rapper you were doing it before you became this character just as yourself as a rapper how did um uh, those two paths kind of cross like was your um was your rap stuff before that um quite comical and character driven anyway or was it a real like I'm just going to try something completely different now. We met at that sort of transitional period because I used to do rap workshops, and you know. which is where I, which is where I met. Uh, well, yes, because um, uh, I got in touch with you um, through, um, through, through just through email, saying I really liked your stuff, and you wrote back and sent me some tracks. I think I was, I think I was, af- I think I was after old music of yours. You I was, were, yeah. I was, I was like, oh, I really love your stuff, and uh, and then we just sort of continued chatting and. Uh, I started writing raps the more I listened to um, listen to your stuff and a lot of the people you work with. Um, and then you you took a look at some of my work and was very complimentary about it, even though I am sure it was garbage. It was good stuff, man. Uh, and you said, come down to the rap workshops. And, uh, and it is a great, like, the, the, the great thing about hip-hop is it's a brilliant leveller, no matter what... Your cultural background is no matter what class you you are, no matter what age you are, really. If mm. you kind of are all coming together in a in a rap workshop or in a rap cipher where loads of people are getting together and freestyling, everything else gets cleared away, and it's purely about your level of skills. And although it's competitive, there is a huge amount of collaboration involved. You can't really do rap music in a vacuum. Mm. You know, you have to be teaming up with other people and getting ideas and getting advice. Mm. And that was lovely. I remember doing those rap workshops, and and inevitably there was some some quite alpha male type kids in the making and there's another guy called Tom Hines who's an amazing workshop leader um, and he was very good at taking those kind of kids who needed a bit of like sort of 
got a borders laying down like no you can't yeah. do that we're going to be doing this but there were a lot of other kids like yourself who were kind of like uh, like I am and that sort of just kind of want to try it out let's see how it goes and yeah. I remember sort of taking off it was quite an interesting sort of mi- mix and e- amazingly everyone was really like I was really nervous about going there obviously mm. because I don't look like the kind of the, I certainly didn't then uh, I don't now but um, certainly didn't look like the sort of kid that even listened to rap, let alone t- attempted it. But there was, and, a few, there was a few of you who were like exactly the same as me. I spent my entire life mm, going, "You like you, you're a rapper. You like doing rap." And I think there's just you know there is a certain breed of rapper that's like, that <laughs> loves it dearly, but it, you know looks absolutely nothing like what the you know yeah. what people expect. But amazingly, the kids there that did look like they could be weren't sort of like, "Why is this guy here?" They were really actually quite um, encouraging and really yeah, everyone definitely. was. There wasn't anyone. Who made you feel? Oh, I don't belong here. Like it was. It was. I think that's the same in most subcultures. Even you know, one of the lovely things about doing the professor is Mm. that I've had access to loads of subcultures I otherwise wouldn't have seen. So I've done lots of steampunk thing, but I've hung out with bronies. I've done gigs at fetish nights and comic conventions (laughs) and sci-fi nights and and like heavy death metal nights. I've done a few of those kind of gigs, and it's universal actually that. All of these things from the outside, you might look at like a fetish night and all of the kind of like kinky equipment and stuff, and you go, God, that looks terrifying. But people are lovely. And if there's one thing doing this, the, the performance side has taught me, mm. whether you're doing kind of hip hop or whether you're hanging out with the bronies, people generally are lovely. And particularly in these little communities that they've formed, we've all formed these little communities for ourselves and they're different for everybody. Um, but that's when you kind of see people's humanity at its best, I think. It's lovely. That's amazing. I start, I've always, same as you, didn't look like I was able to rap. Mm. So that, it does make it kind of a little bit of an exciting thing when people go, oh my God, I thought it was going to be shit. Like, there's that sense of relief <laughs> that an audience feels that they're not going to watch something that's terrible. I think can be, you know, it can be really fun to play with. It's definitely, and I mean, I think that's why... Um, you were a particularly good mentor for me in terms of um, writing raps and getting on stage and performing them because you understood my uh, trepidation. Yeah, absolutely. I understood the kind of the the pitfalls of looking the way we do and acting the way we do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do still rap not as the professor as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think when you were doing those workshops, I was almost getting to that stage because I would have been... I was getting on for 30, and that's when mm. most, you know, if you've got half a brain, that's probably when it's time to stop rapping if you haven't made a success of it, because <laughs> no one really needs to see a rapping dad. There's not a huge market for rapping dads, apart from with other rapping dads. Well, that's but, the thing, when I met you, um, your firstborn was on, yeah, on the way. Yeah, it was happening, and, you know, and I had a, a teaching career and all sorts. Mm. So the professor thing was, it wasn't intended to be, but was almost in some ways probably a bit of a last gasp at trying something a bit new with it and I had always been really uncomfortable in my own skin on stage trying to do sort of battle rapping and things like that I could write them but I didn't deliver them authentically I yeah mean, you know if, if, if the listeners ever see a picture of either of us you can see that we're not cut out for battle <laughs> rapping or indeed any kind of battles at all apart I, from emotionally well, <laughs> it's a very good English custom for the weather be cold or hot if you need a little pick up your little cheek up will always hit the spot Soldiers may be fighting in the trenches or a battleship at sea, but there isn't any war when the clock strikes four. Everything stops fourteen. When you with those gigs and those kind of shows, was it like made up of people who very wanted serious, you know, sort of serious rap and not this 
kind of clowning around or was it a bit of a room divider <laughs> in that there were people who were actually like oh i i i'm on board this i like i like this weird this yeah. weirdness you've uh, you've bought into the music or and the shows. Yeah, it was definitely, and it was a bit of a divider. And some people got annoyed that it looked, and, and people still do now get annoyed that it looks from the outset. If you don't kind of spend any time with the music and the character, it looks like I might be just a posh white bloke taking the Mickey out of rap music, <laughs> which is devastating to me because although I've created that situation for myself, I hate that. That's the thing I hate more than anything in the world. I've loved hip hop since like the, you know the late eighties. I know everything there is to know about hip hop and you know like like a lot of white suburban boys <laughs> the only way we can access it is by absorbing every bit of knowledge we possibly can because we'll never be cool enough to kind of be part of it otherwise yeah. and yeah nothing nothing annoys me more than poor poorly worked out uh, rap parodies um, yes and yet people you know inevitably <laughs> hopefully not become too much of one <laughs> yeah because you, you grew up in the uh slums of uh, Ipswich didn't tough you times, tough times yeah <laughs> but then that's another thing there was another kind of um, sort of myth that was broken the more I got older and got into hip hop because I remember when mm. I first started rapping oh my god I'm this little middle class suburban white boy you know and I'm getting into rap music and of course once I got out of London, and that was a bit of a divide, and I got into Brighton, <laughs> most of the people rapping were also middle-class white lads. Some of them yes. were able to fake an estuary accent really well or act really hard. <laughs> but once you got down to it, they were all, their real names were all Tarquin or something like that. It was, you know, that, just, that was part of it. And that's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I think the professor does well in America is the difference... Because over here, it's not such a big deal. Like, there is a real, a genuine melting pot when it comes to making hip-hop music, particularly the more sort of traditional stuff that yes. came on. There was no money involved, and everyone was just doing it to mess about and yeah. have fun. But it was all walks of life and all cultural backgrounds. Whereas in America, it is, the racial divide is still a little bit bigger, particularly when, when it comes to rap music. Sometimes when people talk to me about not liking rap in America sometimes it feels like it might be coming with a little bit of coded racism that I'm a bit like, oh, I'm not sure I'm that comfortable with like you just liking me. Why is it just me that you like particularly? <laughs> oh, God. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not universal, but there is definitely a bigger racial yeah. divide, which makes him more of a novelty over there. Whereas mm. here, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of weird and wonderful styles of rap music. Yeah, and also, like, it's been quite interesting when you've taken... Um, you, you kind of have done the odd track... Uh, as a professor which does uh, take a political stance like you did uh, I'm British mm. which um, like from how it originally was to then when you redid it uh, for, for, for Brexit um, because again sort of explain to people that don't know um, what was your kind of original thought be behind a song like I'm British to then feeling like oh I've got to up so I did a song um, did a song about being British because there were so many so many lovely little quirks culturally that I love more about the English than the British really but I'm English sounded a little bit too Brexit <laughs> even pre-Brexit I'm oh, yeah, English the, the, sound great. this was um, 2012 yeah right? so it's yeah. a more innocent time so it's a very very sort of almost a twee little song really about all of the characteristics of Britishness whether mm. it's kind of being being awful to celebrities or how sarcastic we are and all that kind of yes. stuff yes um, and, and you filmed a video for it as well filmed a lovely little video um, and where we all dressed up as uh, very yeah. heavy on the eccentricity wasn't yes. it just playing into the kind of eccentricity centricities of Britain mm. um, but the combination of that 
and me wearing a jacket that I got in a raffle at Glastonbury that had a big Union Jack on it. <laughs> and then Brexit happening, I suddenly found that as the country got more divided, I was attracting some fans that I didn't particularly want. And it's really tricky as well, because I'm, you know, rabidly left-wing as well. I'm really, you know, hmm. fiercely left-wing. <clears throat> and when it works, the combination of me looking that way, but doing left-wing comedy on stage can work brilliantly. But when it doesn't, and the subverting of expectations is a bit mm. too abrupt or a bit too extreme, I've kind of, yeah, I've, I've, I, I went through a phase of getting really cross with getting the wrong kind of fans. And so I, I, um, I listened to some interview with Daniel Kitson, who's a real hero of mine, about how he, he alienates certain, certain <laughs> groups so he doesn't end up with them as fans. I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. But I sort of forgot I wasn't quite big enough to do that. <laughs> and so I was quite, oh yeah, I was probably, I went a bit extreme and a little bit, I was a bit rude to my audience. I think early 30s as well, you're getting a little bit cocky. Um, mm. And that's, there's, one, there's not much I regret in my sort of, uh, ramshackle little career but there was a period where I was trying to get a bit too political as a kind of response to what was going on and I was just starting to alienate everyone because no one has come to watch a funny little man in a pith helmet change their views on Brexit they've come to watch him do a song about tea do a funny little dance and fuck off so it's just I've tried to get the balance back a little bit now and tried not to and not to go out of my way to alienate people there's enough there's enough sort of side taking and binary decisions you're either this yes. or you're that you know I'm, I'm I don't mind taking the mickey out of people who deserve it, but at the same time, I kind of want to get everybody back on board now. Yeah, We've had enough yeah. arguments with our parents about Brexit now. Let's, let's do and, something different. I think that's like that was that was definitely a one-off because your yeah, what's also quite nice about your albums in particular is like they are normally concept albums, <laughs> all about the professor and his life, and it's this kind of um, well, it's again this imaginary world. I mean, this it's rather like. This is really this is a really good talk to you as like character comedy, but also in terms of like as a writer and writing essentially sketches. Yeah, absolutely. That are all kind of interweaved and it's because um, there's one I mean you've done a, um, quite a few albums, uh, but one that particularly I think stands out in terms of a story is one called Ape Quest, mm. which is where the professor goes back in time to find his orangutan butler Jeffrey, and every song is um, all of the different uh, periods of time that you travel through, Absolutely. isn't it? Take a look all around. Now you're in the wild, wild west. But there's something kind of strange, not like the rest. It's the weird, 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 weird. And that's the, that's the lovely thing about it, the sort of the, the collaborative nature of it, and particularly if you're going to do one character for years and years, it's essential that you have different elements to kind of keep changing up. Like the most recent album, uh, which Alex is on, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, as an, as an evil <laughs> jack in the box. Thank um, you. Uh, we, I got a battle rapper called uh, Adam Fellman, um, who I've been friends with for a while, and he plays a different type of character, a new villain on it, and having different rappers, and he's got a level of skill and a style that's completely different to mine, and just that really made me want to up my game when I was kind of doing battles. So you have to kind of, I think collaboration in this sort of thing is essential. And also, when you haven't got anybody uh, sort of backing you, it's not like like I've got a management company, it's not like I've got loads of opportunities for broadcast and anything like that. But the downside, you know, and that's that's sort of fine because I've got an audience, I don't really care about that, but it can go, you know, you can get way too self-indulgent. But by having the professor to kind of 
uh, create some little boundaries that everything I do is within his world it makes it a lot easier to be creative in some ways I think sometimes the best art comes from restrictions rather than from freedom If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Uh, I think it would probably be uh, probably Basil Fawlty. Actually, what? <laughs> Explain I yourself. <laughs> I love it <laughs> because because he's so similar and reminds me so much of my dad, um, and I just. The joy of the sort of impotent rage of some somebody trying to affect things that they can't possibly do anything about, even if it could have created quite a lot of sort of violence and disruption in the house. I think I would be I would be all right just to sit back and watch it happen. In fact, it would probably calm me down because if you've got someone acting that wildly, you just end up getting a bit more chilled. So yeah, I'll have, I'll have Basil Fawlty in. Thanks very much. Is that how it was at home? If your dad got really angry, you'd feel more. Chilled. No, he's more of a sort of he's a, he's he goes for the quiet. I'm very disappointed in you, so you know, I'll be, are we talking on a minimal basis to you until I'm feeling better about this? Which you you know, as as a kid, is more devastating than anything. See, it's funny. My dad was like Basil Fawlty in completely the opposite way. That scene. Every time I see that scene of him shouting at the car and then going out to thrash it, my mum and I just kind of look at each other and we're just like, we can just see my dad. He get, he got so, like, the gritted teeth and the, start, you bastard! Like, well, it is something, and it's something that I didn't realise, and I'm, I'm you know, not, not all men, but most men as they get older, <laughs> they get, you know, they. I think, I think from what I've seen about middle age, and I'm generalising mm. hugely here, I appreciate that, this is not a universal thing, <laughs> but a lot of the men that I know are getting angry that's why <laughs> GB News is, exists in the first place. Oh, Men get angry yes. at their kind of like their disappointing lives as they get older. <laughs> and as far as I can see, women just become more tired because <laughs> <laughs> they've dealt with so much shit. By the time they get to the menopause, they're like, oh, for fuck's sake, please let me rest. So, yeah, there's a lot of angry men and tired women out there. I mean, so, where would you lock down with Basil Fawlty? Because um, you can choose your, like, you can do it in Fawlty Towers or you can do it in this room right here. Fuck that. <laughs> I basically work in a cupboard. I'm not doing that. No, let's take, let, you know, I'll probably be me, but let's take him to Elemental's country pile so I can kind of lock him away in the West Wing <laughs> yes. if he gets a bit too much. And I think that would be, I think the combination of the professor's optimistic nuttiness and Basil's kind of like sour nuttiness would be quite a good thing. Nice. Right, so, locking down with Basil Fawlty. I really, ne I genuinely never thought I'd have a guest say that. Um, <laughs> So that is very interesting. Because everything is ever so it's splendid. Yes, indeed. It's splendid. I'm really pleased. It's splendid. Well, isn't that nice? It's splendid. So sing it twice. It's splendid. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You work a lot with uh, Tom Caruana. Uh, he is he he makes the majority of your yeah. Uh, he really music, does. I, sh- he? I should say in every interview and in every podcast I ever get to to spout off without Tom Caruana, there is no way that I could make a career out of this because he's the most amazing musician and producer. So I can shout about myself and rap and talk about the professor nonstop, but without some lovely music to make it palatable. Um, and I should say as well um, to. Find more of Tom's music. He's got a record label called TC Records. T is in a cup of tea and C is in the ocean. So if you look up TC Records, you'll find all of his amazing music. How did you meet Tom Caruana? Um, I met him when I just started rapping and I was in Glastonbury and we were sitting around a campfire and it was that stage where you just learn a thing and you think you're going to be good at the thing but you're a bit too scared to kind of like just have it as your party piece around yeah. strangers and Tom <laughs> was walking by fell over me and into the fire just about <laughs> saved himself in you know, like the typical bumbling hob- <laughs> little hobbit that he is sat down and because he's the most personable <clears throat> mellow and engaging person just sat down <clears throat> and we were talking about rapping and then he just said oh I could, you know, I could do a little beatbox if you like and so his his sort of early beatboxing was also one of the first times I'd rapped in front of strangers and then he just started sending me beats in the days when you would just sort of send a demo tape with a few mm. different beats on and yeah it was it felt like felt like an unimaginable dream that there would be someone who could make music and that I could rap over the top of it it just seemed outrageous that I could even do it in private let alone make a career out of it that's amazing how was that when you first when in that first one that first meeting and performing to that like how was that? that well, was... you know, for a long time, I, I had like three raps. <laughs> no, just I'd do them. People, oh, that's amazing! What a great rap! Can you do some more? No, no I just got that one. <laughs> so yeah. I got really good at just doing the just doing the one or two. But to, to, to my to my eternal annoyance, because I, I just took me a long while to find my voice, and that was a. Another thing that the professor brought out for most of my early rap career, I did mm. some all right songs, but I rapped in an accent that sounded a bit like this, like like an American with a blocked up nose. I don't know where it came from, because <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't want to do go too Londony, and I sort of I listened to a lot of American rap, and it just came out like that. Mm. So when I started doing the professor, finding a voice that was everything that I'd been sort of scared to share with the world, my, my sort of middle-classness or getting a little bit posh and overexcited, putting yeah. that out there was actually quite refreshing in some ways. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's amazing how um, honesty really resonates. Well, there's a Gary, Gary Shandling, sorry, Gary Shandling quote uh, where he says the more personal something is, the more universal it is. And that's such a good tip when it comes to writing comedy or writing songs as well lots of the songs mm. they write are quite sort of personal ones and if you find something that's personal to you whether it's things that irritate you or something about being in love or whatever it might be yeah. that tends to be the thing that resonates with everybody else How, at that time because even when you when you your first album was quite was still quite as you say you had this sort of accent you did but <laughs> uh, it was still comedy was comedy and hip hop done that much because i mean i know before the interview we talked we we were talking about shock g and humpty hump uh was that a big 
influence? Like what, what kind of made you uh, change your tack and sort of being like, oh no, I think it's okay to be funny in rap. Especially as like, what, it, that would be the, uh, was that um, around the time that the stuff in the charts was G-Unit? And yeah, it was quite, quite serious, yeah. like gangster, Hip-hop gangster and club around, rap, yeah. Yeah. and it become it become very kind of mainstream and sounded quite similar. It come out of you know come out of the nineties where it was all quite innovative, and yes. then it all sort of streamlined and became quite boring. And that's when the underground sort of British scene was at its most exciting. Really, there was you know as you know there was all these sort of freestyle battles and stuff, mm. and there was quite a lot of variety going on. Um, but yeah, it, it still makes me annoyed now when people kind of dismiss the professor as a a rap gimmick or just the idea of being I think generally art that's funny Mm. any kind of art that's funny is generally thought of as less important than art that is serious that's just whether you're a painter or whether you're a writer or anything like that Um, and there's you know a long as long as there's been hip-hop there's been I mean hip-hop's originally about making people dance and have a good time at parties so whether you're talking about Bismarcky or the Fresh Prince or Digital Underground or you know loads of serious rappers who've done some funny tracks. It's supposed to be mm. about just dicking around with your mates and getting everybody <laughs> to have a really funny time. Obviously, there's there's as much variations of hip hop as there is you know colours colours in a rainbow now. Yes, but yes. you know at its essence, I think that is a really it's a really key part of it. And I think um, the challenge of trying to make stuff that's actually good music as well as being funny is a challenge I'll always really enjoy. Because you can do stupid stuff, and there are still... There's rappers out there now that are able to freestyle, and um, I was chatting with a rapper called Gramsci about how much we both universally hate rappers who are adequate freestylers and label their um, videos on YouTube white posh boy destroys freestyle like why are you mentioning that you're white why yeah. that, what's that got to do with anything they just don't they're sort of coming at it from the wrong angle like to try and impress people who don't really like hip hop rather than kind of you know yeah, pay yeah. more attention to where it's come from and um, you know trying to come up the proper way I don't know but that's also I'm old and grumpy now so <laughs> maybe it's just that maybe I just hate young young successful people <laughs> oh no I, I, think, mean... that, I think that is what it is actually you can delete that last part I think I've sussed it <laughs> I'm British like a clotted cream tea apologetic Morris dancer then you must mean me I'm British like the wickets in cricket like crikey blimey nice one wicked I'm British as a fat dame in a panto like Woodhouse, Orwell, Wells and Poe. So if you're down with the Brits, then make some noise. But if you'd rather not, that's fine. Leaning into the things that you kind of... When you're a teenager, that whatever it is that makes you feel a bit like an outcast and a bit embarrassed and a bit like, oh, God, what are people going to think of me? Yeah. As the older you get, the more you go, oh, no, actually, this is the very thing that defines me. And then <laughs> as you get even older than that, it's like, oh, God, I am ruled by this thing. <laughs> and I know it's escape from it at all because <laughs> yeah the most recent album that I've done not as Professor Elemental is called Dad, uh, Good Dad Club and that's even you know <laughs> in a funny sort of way making music is particularly rap music it creates a kind of lifelong diary because it's where you are at the time and now all my songs are about trying to have a night out but feeling slightly slightly <laughs> too tired or, or realising you'll never ever be cool again because you're now middle aged you know, I'm, I'm enjoying that and, there's, and also it's it's sort of new ground because rap is as old as I am. <laughs> then everything that I'm doing that is about how I'm feeling now, no one's no one's been old enough to, to make those kind of things before. 
So when I'm doing my thing about what it's like to be a 60-year-old rapper, no other bugger's done it before. It's brilliant. I get to be innovative just by going being old. You, you, found, a, you found a gap in the market. I found a gap in the market, and I am sitting in that gap until they eventually kick me out. And the same with the professor. Like I've, I've been incredibly fortunate. Although he's kind of plateaued, there was a brief period where I was doing um, lots of work for sort of... Uh, uh, voiceovers, uh, mm. Disney cartoons, and bits and pieces yes. that were a bit more commercial. Yes. And there was a moment where I was like, "Oh, is this actually going to turn into a kind of a mainstream thing?" Mm. And it didn't at all. It was just, it was just that moment. <laughs> You're in Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, no, I've absolutely. I've had some great little moments out of it, and I'm still. But it sort of plateaued, but it didn't necessarily shrink. So I've got no. a really lovely audience that you know will still come out to things, and I can still play all over the place and all over the world. Mm. Um, and the fact that it's kind of sort of stayed static has been a really nice place to find yourself, really. I feel yes. very, very lucky to establish something that has got some longevity. Thank how, God. How, how, um, <laughs> uh, how was it when you took that character to, like, conventions? It definitely works in those kind of nerdy environments because people are already accepting. They're already dressed as, mm. like, you know, an anime character or a pony <laughs> or something. So they're already on board to watch whatever weird shit yes. is thrown in front of them yeah, yeah. so that's fine and also I'm talking to my people so I can make inside jokes about comics and say those little things and say look I, you know, I don't worry I'm like, we're all in this, in this together where, where Professor sometimes has fallen so badly on his ass is sometimes <laughs> things like award ceremonies or mainstream corporate events where I've been given a little bit too much of too much to play with and they're like no just go up and do your thing and I try particularly when I was younger I'd try and win everybody over mm. and sometimes it would just be so incongruous to the surroundings or the audience would be so far from what I would normally mm. um, be playing in front of yeah I've done I've done award ceremonies where each award I announced you know another table full of people left until oh, the end of the night when I did my last <laughs> song there was just me and the woman who'd hired me oh. <laughs> with her saying do people normally enjoy that and me going yes I mean sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing like it's doing bringing a character out like that into the world like especially like for the sort of first time it, it it must be daunting in that kind of when you're start, especially when you are starting something like that you are very much like please like me yeah everyone please like me and um you know the sort of years you say you've been doing it for 15 years so of course now you've got to a point where perhaps you could be a bit more like well if you don't like it Fuck off! Like, also, I think or like it's... it's more that I kind of, I still, I would still, I'm still desperately needy. Like, <laughs> if anything, now that now that I'm middle you're a comedy performer, well, exactly. of course. It's... I'm particularly sort of a middle-aged comedy performer. No one else is giving me a round of applause for anything else I do. So that's my only chance for some kind of affirmation. Like, please, this is all I've got. You have to like this. But I'm much better at realizing there is. It's not worth trying to win people over. If I've got yeah. an audience and it's going really badly, but I've got two fans yes. in the front, which some. Like a lot of wedding gigs. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, have like yeah. one person from the wedding is enjoying. You just play to that person. You don't wander into the audience and go, hey, everyone, stop looking at your phone. Look at me. Let's be friends. That is a disaster. Yeah. Makes you just look even more <laughs> needy than you already are. Do you play a lot of weddings? Amazingly, I do. I do play. I play so many strange gigs. I play, I play rap gigs in places where there's never ever been a rap gig before um, oh please please give us delightful. please give us a little uh, breakdown if you can if you can remember off the top of your head oh god yeah I've played, very like, I've played inside a mountain in Sweden I've gone <laughs> I've done a pop concert in Cambodia where they put me on after the main act in front of 2,000 people and people <laughs> literally ran away from the act crying and indeed screaming I've yeah I've done like gigs for small children I've done rap workshops for vulnerably <laughs> Housed elderly adults, just 
There's, there's probably not many demographics that at some point haven't rapped to with varying degrees of success. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, that's not me saying, hey, I can play everywhere. I, a good 50% of them have been a disaster. <laughs> that's great. I mean, the the stories, for example, for, start, for starters, but just also like the adventures that you you wouldn't... Good or bad in terms of like reception, Definitely. like they are still not many people would get to to say that. And there's something quite like I think there's something a little bit magical about putting on a costume that I mean half of it is either stolen or from a charity <laughs> shop. It's a, it's a very ramshackle costume at the rest of the time. But just putting that on has enabled me. It's like giving me access to all of these strange places and countries that I never would have gone. You know, I endlessly talk about the professor trying to get into this gentleman's club, and then I found myself winning eccentric of the year a few years ago and was in a gentleman's club as the professor so like it's amazing what how we can make your dreams come true or or make um, dreams you didn't know you have <laughs> had come true <laughs> and uh, and that's also spilled out into i mean merch like oh, you, you, you now you now have your own tea brand. I mean, that was only a matter of time. But you do, don't you? You've got your own. There is, there, yeah. I mean, there is nothing I won't put my face on. And I'm just because I'm a nerd as well, and I know how collectors work. And my audience is quite nerdy. <laughs> I like making things that I think would, you know, would suit a collection. But also, it, you know, drives your performer's ego to put your face on a tea towel. It just makes me laugh. And <laughs> I just had a load, had a load of tattoos, like temporary tattoos of my face. And I went camping with my friends, and I. Wait until they're all drunk and whip them out like, who wants a tattoo of my face on their arm? Like, for fuck's sake, Paul. Will you just stop it, please? I mean, my poor partner, lovely, shout out to Helen Fry. You know, these huge boxes arrive at the house and I'll just be like, look, sweetheart, it's another load of tea towels with my face on. Take them to the office, go on, off you go. Okay, see you. So, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, I think the, the character also allows me to um, be incredibly egotistical and try and get away with it, <laughs> to, or at least to indulge in, like having indulge in my lot of ego and see how far I can take it. I mean, because the the merchandise also. I mean, you've you've had your own comic, you've had you've you have published books, like you have a yeah. Um, there's good three books of books yes. across now, but again, they're all that. It's the same as with Tom Caruana. They're just an excuse to collaborate with people who I admire and like. Mm. And the comics were written by a chap called Chris Mole, mm. who introduced me to all these amazing artists like Jamie Key and Cliff um, Cliff Cumber. And just the just they're all they're all little artistic collaborations. And half the time, more than or as much as my ego or finances might be a factor, mm. you know, most of the creative things I do, they're just an excuse to hang out with someone I want to spend time with. Quite a lot of people you've worked with, you have just you've reached out to them online, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. It's... And that's a wonderful thing. For all of the, you know, the difficult things, you could, you could endlessly talk about how hard it's been to be a musician during the times of COVID and all that kind of stuff. But mm. um, And I'm not making light of any of those because I've, I've felt it too. And some people have had it a lot worse. But the little silver lining that there's been, it's been, everybody's been sitting around. So I've been reaching mm. out to people who I would never have been able to collaborate with and been able to create some lovely stuff off the back of it as well. And I'm lucky that I've had the luxury of being able to do that in that um, things like Patreon have been keeping me financially afloat that I've got the luxury of reaching out to people. Yes. But it is, yeah, it's all, if you ever, if there's anyone listening to this, if you, when you have those kind of creative <laughs> moments where you get stuck, if you're stuck, just find someone else to do some stuff with who can do all the things that you can't do and make it happen from there. <laughs> Did you go and watch a lot of comedy growing up? Like what was kind of what sort of, um, what got you into 
It was a lot of, it was, it was, well, it was that nice old alternative comedy scene, and a bit like hip hop, you could only get snatches of it. You could find mm. it in the odd place here and there. You'd see a little bit of it late night on Channel 4 or something. I, went to, I think the first comedian I went to see was Jeremy Hardy, who was oh, wow. just one of the most yes. underrated comedians that there ever was, and I was devastated when we lost him recently. Mm. Um, but his sort of very wry, very British, very middle class self. Um, self-depreciating take on things uh, was a huge influence on me Mm. um, as was the kind of more boombastic stuff that I'd never be like but really appreciated the electric sales of this world and that kind of stuff so but yeah and it was you know it was I I sort of got into comedy in the early 90s where there was that little golden age of it was all it was a lot of verbal comedy a lot of black adder and things like that where it was kind of you know it was all sort of it was it was less physical stuff and more verbal cerebral stuff and that really appealed to my love of rap music and words trying to find ways to tie it all together did you always want to do comedy performing like were you were you were you were you a sort of born performer or was that I was a little bit of... but only but in a way that I kind of I quickly accepted that I was also a bit of a twat I was kind of self depreciated <laughs> like you know there's always that cliche of well I nearly got bullied when I was a kid but I made them laugh and they stopped bullying me I kind of didn't do that I just leaned into the bullying <laughs> yeah. to make sure that it was a spectacle that people could really enjoy <laughs> so actually instead of beating me up why don't you turn me to that rugby post over there and then, uh, and then I'll try and get everyone's attention and then the bullies kind of lost interest because like you are enjoying this a bit too much I'm mm, not sure this is really working out we putting you in this bin or whatever so it was a kind of it was a strange way to kind of move around it but it was it always felt like something that was for other people like it was way out of reach the idea Mm. that you could do something artistic for a living was not on the cards and it was sort of you know just it just wasn't even the vaguest possibility um so yeah i think that's why i'm still so excited about it and so sort of grateful all the time spend every day going oh my god i can't believe i still don't have to go to work this is amazing (laughs) (laughs) so looking forward to um the future uh, it's something there... you don't hear very often these days, isn't it? <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing what the, what the future brings. Things are looking great. <laughs> because you have tapped into various all mediums now, like you know, obviously you do you do um, audio with music. We we co-wrote a little radio. Uh, series called The Adventures of Which Professor Elemental. Which is probably my favourite Professor Elemental thing to date. It was oh, the, most, the most fun I've had doing a Professor thing in terms of it being like a complete scene of where he, where I wanted him to be. I could track down that frog much quicker than you, Swellington. I know the Oceana Islands like the back of the blunderbuss in my fighting trousers. The blunderbuss in your trousers? Oh yes, best place to keep it. Reliable and safe. Only gone off once in front of the Duchess. Quickly ended that ball. Sorry, poor choice of words. Enough. Now, hold on, gentlemen. It's only fair we give the Professor here a fighting chance. How about a wager? A raise to the frog? I'll have you know, Swellington, that my flying Susan is tip-top and bang up to the elephant. I accept your challenge. Then it is settled. Yes, yes, it is. By the by, what actually is the challenge I've blindly accepted? Why, a perilous airship race to an uncharted island of savages, of course. Oh, of course. Of all the things we have stolen from other cultures and stuffed in museums and claimed as our own, we've never had a golden frog. Whoever can obtain the golden frog... Oh, give the fanfare a rest, Felix. Sorry. An opportunity to make the radio show that no one was ever going to commission us to make. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that's that's another thing when it comes to and going back to like that American guy that I had the conversation with. Yeah, you're making yeah. something and no one wants it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make it. Even if you make it and then people hate it, it still doesn't mean you shouldn't have made it because the the process of making it yeah. uh, is more than enough most of the time. Well, absolutely, and that's and and that's kind of what's kind of left that you are still like, oh, I'd love to tread those boards. I'd love to try try that out. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to do more writing a little bit outside of The Professor in terms of creative collaborations. Now, I've done so many collaborations with him, I want to find other areas to develop. But in, in amongst all of that, there's as long as I've got things that I'm doing, there's things that The Professor can be doing, and that he's the kind of character that you can put in so many different situations. And as long as there's still steampunk, and there's mm. still nerds, and there's still people who listen to my strange ramblings, <laughs> then I can just keep doing it. And a bit like, a, you know, a much lesser Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan situation, I was a young man pretending to be a mad old professor. I'm rapidly becoming <laughs> a mad old man who's <laughs> pretending to be a mad professor. The two things will come together. Eventually, my partner and children will understandably leave me for becoming a mad <laughs> lunatic and I'll go and live in a country pile and that's the end of that. <laughs> so the final uh, part of the podcast. This character uh, is being gifted to you by Cat Bond, Aww. who you know uh, from Radio Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and the name is Irene Giblet. <laughs> so, who is Irene Giblet? Irene Giblet is a little old lady with a blue rinse, the kind you don't see much of these days, and she's got a, a laundrette, an old-fashioned laundrette, underneath a viaduct in a northern town, a nondescript northern town. And little Irene Giblet, she invites people into her laundrette, um, but also, she does murder them. Not all of them, because that would be suspicious. <laughs> so a bit of a Sweeney Todd. Le- the Sweeney, uh, she's the Sweeney Todd of laundrette owners. <laughs> and she started off, she had a little pet cat. Uh-huh. And it went into, the, into one of the machines by accident a few years back. Hmm. And it, the machine had started, it was too late, there was no one in. And she thought she'd be horrified, but the pleasure she found of watching that cat go round and round and round, it just it got her thinking... Actually, maybe I want to do more of this sort of thing. Oh, wow. Maybe I want to diversify. <laughs> and what she does is she she kills people and steals their clothes. She steals and then she wears like another layer. She just put every time someone dies, she puts another layer on. So she's basically round, just wearing. Has that's she, not a funny character. That's just she, horrible. I mean, isn't has it? she has she not heard of charity shops? Oh, she has, but she likes she likes the thrill of the, the chase around the laundrette when she's locked the door. And they say, excuse me, I want to get out. And she says, oh, you're not going anywhere, dear. And then she chases them around that little bench you always get in the middle. How does she, because presumably this is a public laundrette. Yes. Is it kind of a last one out? Gets killed and it's just luck of the draw? Or does she try and lure people in as, on a kind of one-to-one basis? Like, how does yeah, she it, it, it get or, or is Or is it, or is it mass... Genocide? No, God, God, no. she's not a monster, man. She just kills individuals when she likes their cardigans. I don't think there's nothing too unusual about that. So she does it on an ad hoc basis. Some, just to, you know, she'll take an opportunity, or um, if she sees. Actually, it might be one of those nice ones where I always used to like those stories that you'd get in like 1980s comics. Those sort of <laughs> twist in the tale stories where there'd be. There used to be one called. Uh, 
the 13th floor and it was about it's like this computer in this office block had ever seen anyone being nasty it would take them to the 13th floor and that's what Irene does she's very she's in a very similar sort of fashion she sees people who she thinks are doing wrong she kills them with knitting needles stuffs them in a washing machine steals the cardigan the end <laughs> not funny but morally correct I like how you <laughs> I like how you told that in your horror voice in your horror storytelling voice it's brilliant so is there is there anyone who has cottoned on to what she's doing and is trying to perhaps bring her down but also not get killed in the process yes uh, Officer Trout mm. um, and who is Officer Trout I'm not going to tell you because that's going to be the person who your next interviewee is going to have to talk about Officer Trout. Officer Trout. I didn't say nothing about Officer oh. Trout. And he doesn't, you know, your next interview, he doesn't have to talk about Irene. I just want to know oh, that's, more about Officer oh, Trout. I like, I like that. Now, that is something we haven't had before, where a, a spin-off of a character <laughs> in the net. I like that. Okay, Officer Wow. So let's let's uh, let's focus just a little bit longer on I- Irene, but we'll go, we'll put a pin in Officer Trout. <laughs> oh, she'd uh, love to put a pin in Officer Trout. <laughs> that's, that's all Irene wants to do. Does she um, live alone, or does she have family who are either aware or completely unaware of her murderous tendencies? No, she does live alone, and she's got my best friend called Ethel, hmm. who. Hmm, it's either a partner in crime or very suspicious of the whole thing. I think, I think maybe a partner in crime would be Is she useful. perhaps like, did she sort of perhaps find out, not meaning to, and was, you know, or was like shot and then has like been brought round to the idea? Absolutely, you don't want to see, You don't want to see me go to prison, do you, Ethel? Well, I don't, dear, I don't. Well, then you'll have to help me bury this body. That's how it spans. And now Ethel's, she's in, she wants out. Ethel oh, wants out, of course she does. How many, so burying the bodies? Piles of them. Where, where, like, well, I mean, you can say where, or that's a mystery, but is there a particular place where she is burying all the bodies? This is the problem. She ran out of space in the garden. She's stuffing them everywhere now. They, it's a mess. They're up the chimney. They're in the wardrobe. She <laughs> doesn't know what to do with the blinking thing. So all she needs is a warrant for Officer Trout to come and search the place. And she's had it. That's true, unless Ethel agrees to take some of them on board to her, <laughs> to her place at, at, the, uh, at the sheltered housing, oh. which Ethel isn't keen to do, but to be honest, uh, Irene is a very forceful, forceful character. Is Ethel a neighbour? Ethel's a, yeah, she lives, you know, they've been friends for a long while, but she's seen Irene change over the years. She's become old and embittered and, you know. So it's Irene Gibbler and Ethel... Uh, Ethel Winnipeg. Winnipeg? Yes. Ethel Winnipeg. <laughs> Irene Gibbler and Ethel Winnipeg. Deadly. So, Absolutely deadly. Gibbler and Winnipeg sounds like an ITV drama. It does. For a, of a detective thing. Completely the opposite. Uh, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's ITV. What else is it going to fucking be? <laughs> it's always going to be some <laughs> detective. Kind of detective. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I'm not sure that Irene Gibbler is either is going to make further appearances <laughs> in the world of comedy. So, okay, so she's burying bodies. She's got uh, an accomplice, essentially. Um, does she ever get caught? Well, I mean, that's really... A, it's kind of a season... See, mm. What happens in season two? <laughs> um, she might get caught, but she might still get away with it. Mm. Because think about poor Ethel. She took all those bodies, didn't she? She took them all, and there's little Irene in all her cardigans. Has... She strips down from the cardigans, and then she's like, I had no idea that Ethel had been doing this all along. What? That's the twist. Oh. She turns on Ethel. Oh, that... oh my God. What, what an evil what grandma she is. My God, I'm so... 
Yeah, I mean, she gives me shivers just thinking about her, really. What uh, What did she do before she became this murderous little old lady? She was a murderous middle-aged woman. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, so... Um, no, I think she's just... She is, she's one of those people, you see, who just feels like they've always been a little old lady. And in uh, fact... Perhaps she has. I mean, that's more season four, season five. I'm the, and when, when we get oh, to oh, oh. <laughs> Is this Irene be like eternal life, that's really right. That's, that's quite far so, down the line. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be uh, Giblet hmm. and Winnipeg. Like, it's the you know the sort of drama, hmm. whatever it may be, film, etc. And then in about 15 years' time, Netflix will do a series called Irene. <laughs> exactly <laughs> what they, Yeah, it's going to be a prequel <laughs> that will last like 17 seasons that no one really wants. Brilliant. I, can't, I cannot wait for the money to start rolling in. Another great idea. It's a, it's a wonder I haven't made it into mainstream yet, isn't it? With all these brilliant ideas bubbling mainstream around. Mainstream horror. <laughs> Just yeah. sloshing around in all the blood and guts. I absolutely love horror. And, and much like much like comedy and hip-hop, I'll take all the different versions of it, whether of it's a, a gentle thriller about a ghost or a horrible, horrible Swedish film about a killer nun that eats babies. <laughs> And on that note, that is... Uh... <laughs> what a fine way to end this lovely interview. That is uh, Irene Giblet. And of course, um, our next character we are going to pass on to my next guest is Officer Trout. There's no first name, no. just Officer Trout. 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 <laughs> Who is Officer Trout? We shall find out on the next episode of Out of Character. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute oh, delight. It has been wonderful. I mean, I should point out, you are the guest I have known the longest. You've had to, you've had to witness all of this. <laughs> Somehow you're still hanging around. So thank you. It's been fantastic. I've got to be on stage with the professor. I've as 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 a uh, co-artist and also just as a. A patsy. Yeah, I got, I got, I got, be, I got beaten up in your video. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's so been, you did. And and yeah, it's been it's been a wild a wild ride. May it continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, definitely. Thank you so much for being my guest, the quintessentially splendid uh, Paul Aubra, Professor Elemental. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much indeed. Don't oh, damn it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.